0: That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you
1: there. It's Wednesday, December the 18th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. As the dust settles following the UK general election, the intriguing results of that election in Northern Ireland have been the subject of much debate, and with talks underway in Belfast on the re-establishment of the executive, what lessons will the various parties be bringing to the table from that election? In the studio with me is Pat Leahy, our political editor. Hi, Pat. Hello, Hugh. And on the line, Dr Katie Hayward, who's a senior fellow in the UK on a Changing Europe initiative. Um, Katie, can I ask you first, what is the single most startling result from uh, last Thursday's election?
2: Well, that's a good question. I think possibly it's the fact that the Alliance Party won 17% of the vote, that it was the third largest party and that what we'd seen uh, begin with the local elections and European elections earlier uh, continued on as this trend of the growing centrist vote um, in Northern Ireland um, then leaping out into this um, UK Parliament election and previously Alliance Party hasn't done so well in uh, this majoritarian first-past-the-post system. So the fact that it's managed to come out as the third largest party um, returning an MP um, is something that's very striking and notable. I think.
1: Yes, and it's different, isn't it, from the time it won an MP before, much to people's surprise, in in 2010, when Naomi Long beat Peter Robinson. Uh, Stephen Fary's victory in in North Down is the crest of a wave, which has kind of happened across the whole of Northern Ireland.
2: Yes, yeah, so it's not specific to a um, constituency. We've seen the vote uh, grow across all of Northern Ireland, and there was some debate. Uh, before the election as to whether the alliance party strategy of standing candidates um across northern ireland was a good one because of course uh what was um what else was going on with the sort of the remain packs um between the green party in vain the sdlp the alliance party wasn't having any of that and on principle standing candidates And the question was would this backfire but no it seems that they have done very well and also um, sort of leading to a situation in which um, you know, MPs who are, having, who are in a fairly comfortable position, such as Geoffrey Donaldson, seeing their vote decline um, uh, really very directly as a result of people increasingly voting for the Alliance Party.
1: And did the Alliance Party's decision to stand in all constituencies and not enter into, as you say, a pro-main electoral pact, for example, perhaps, with you know with the SDLP and even with Sinn Féin, did that sort of give permission to unionists who are dissatisfied with the DUP's performance and the, the Ulster Unionist performance, give them more permission to, to shift to alliance? Uh,
2: yes, I think it's a... So the question is, is it a, was, it a, was it a positive vote or was it a, a protest vote? Mm. Um, and if you look at um, where that vote might be coming from, I mean, very clearly the Alliance Party is a pro-Remain party. But also, I mean, it's notable that it had its manifesto out first amongst all the northern Man political parties, um, a very detailed manifesto, setting out policies across a wide range of areas for Northern Ireland um including areas that would be seen you know uh, to be matters of urgent concern, such as relating to health. um and and therefore, possibly, and we can only speculate at this stage, but possibly we saw a situation in which those who tend to be turned off by politics in Northern Ireland seeing as as the sort of same old, same old, were actually motivated to vote in this uh, situation, partly by brexit to remain, but also partly by being fed up of the type of politics that we're very used to in Northern Ireland and and indeed the type of politics that's led to a situation in which we haven't had local government for, um, for nearly three years now.
0: Just wondering, Katie, what your view on that pretty sharp decline in the DUP vote and also on the other side of the ledger in the Sinn Féin vote right across the constituencies. Do you think that was... I suppose you know a temporary punishment by voters because of their failure to operate the uh, Good Friday institutions. Or do you think it's something more profound and more permanent on the political landscape of Northern Ireland?
2: Yeah, it's 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 well, obviously it's too soon to say if it's permanent. But I mean, there are various factors going on here. So Sinn Fein's vote decline dropped more than the DUPs, but I suspect that's in, in no small part due to the fact, of course, it was involved in these Remain pacts. Um, there's a sort of a sort of an abs- anti-abstentionism um, vote coming on within the nationalist community. I mean, it has been clear, although, you know, people, when they vote for Sinn Féin in Northern Ireland, they know what they're getting in terms of, you know, they're not taking their seats in Westminster, but the absence of Sinn Féin was notable. When you've had such tight margins held by the British government as they're trying, they've been trying to push Brexit through. And so that that has had consequences, I think, um, in the vote that Sinn Féin got this time round. And then for the DP, there's different dynamics. Um, there was clear anger from loyalists, sort of middle class, traditional unionist voters. With the way that the DUP handled their position of influence and the way everything ended up with Boris Johnson, um, and it was, I was always thinking it was going to be interesting to see, you know, how that resulted for the DUP. Um, it seems that they managed to get loyalist voters out to support them, but yes, that middle ground, the sort of softer unionist vote, uh, seemed to have um, gone more towards the Alliance Party. Um, and it will be interesting to see now how that translates um, a lot. It seems that they're interpreting it as, both in fame and the D P as a sort of a mandate now to get these the sort of strand one institutions up and running again, which can only be a, a good thing. But longer term, will that affect how they try and approach that middle ground? Uh, that'll be interesting to see how they how they handle that. I, I think,
0: you know, how the DUP reacts to this is one of the central questions now for Northern Ireland and it, it, it's, it's almost, you know, a, a question of what the psychological effect on the DUP of the, not just the result, but the failure uh, of its efforts at Westminster, where it was in a position of unprecedented influence, but it has played that so badly that it has backfired on them from a Unionist point of view. There's also the question, the future, the question of the future of the leadership of the party, the uh, the cash for ash. Uh, inquiry will uh, report in the not too distant future. And I think there's a question for the DUP as to now, how does it react? Does it react? And I think, you know, people are trying to feel out in the talks that are ongoing in, in Belfast this week, people are trying to feel out the DUP for its reaction. There was a hope in Dublin that you know, that the institutions could be set up pretty quickly. But I wonder if the DUP is almost psychologically capable of doing something that dramatic that quickly after it on without having a chance to process the magnitude of the
1: result. This isn't really visible to us. I mean, I'm not sure if it is to you Katie. I mean, what is? I mean, this is a traumatic result for for the DUP and not just the electoral result as Pat says, but their their treatment at Westminster and the kind of the really dramatic collapse of their of their strategy of the last couple of years.
2: They must be in a state of
1: if not shock, some kind of they have to reflect and consider where they're at, do they?
2: Yes, and uh, that that's bound to happen. But there's a there's one thing in with regards to their strategy in Westminster. I think it's fair to acknowledge the fact that, you know, the DUP's approach to the backstop, um, and their objections to it. I mean, sort of reflected a wider trend that was going on in Westminster itself, and that was a denial that um, Brexit would involve compromise, um, and you know, things that would be uncomfortable. Um, And so they were pushing for something that would involve no discomfort or as little as possible, and that, that of course, proved to be impossible, and then it ended up uh, in a way that really um, hurt them. Um, Then there's the other question of of domestically and how they respond to all these challenges. Um, Notably now, I think there's a sense that, well, obviously... Johnson's got his very strong majority. No, you know, no political party in Westminster is going to be siding up to the DUP and trying to keep them on board. So um, the focus now comes back to Stormont and what they can make of that. Um, and we really do. It's a real challenge for leadership now. Um, and what at the moment when you think, you know, um, yeah, there are such acute challenges for not just for unionism, which which are very real, I think, but for Northern Ireland more particularly in, in all sorts of areas. How does the DUP act in response to that? How, what leadership does it show? And there is a concern, I think, that, you know, if we look at how it's responded to such acute challenges in the past for a sense of insecurity in the union, it tends to move towards sort of... Um, more, you know, hard-line positions, more transigency, if you like, and we're seeing that in sort of the Love Ulster rallies, I mean, that very traditional expression of unionism and defensiveness, um, it could go more in that direction, or instead it could reach out to the middle ground, and um, we'll, we'll, you know, this is a critical moment for seeing which way it's led.
1: There's um, Newton Emerson in the Irish Times a couple of days ago was arguing that there were two competing fantasies at play here. That the DUP thought that they were uh, they were part of they had a fantasy of a, of a new form of British nationalism, which was their alliance with parts of the Conservative Party. Whereas in fact it turned out it was English nationalism, which was only too happy to jettison them when as soon as that became convenient. But that equally on the on the Republican side, on Sinn Fein's side, there's a fantasy of reunification being within grasp. There's at least a rhetorical commitment to that within a five year span. Uh, as Mary Lou Macdonald says, and that's probably further away as well, isn't it?
2: I, I would be very cautious about. I think people have read across the fact that we have now have more nationalist MPs and unionists. People have read all sorts of things into that, um, and it's a very simple understanding of uh, of what unification would involve. Um, certainly, I mean, without a doubt, the United Kingdom union is under enormous strain. Um, and uh, really, um, I mean, it's it's true to say that, you know, if Brexit has been interpreted in one particular way, it's in, in the way that English nationalists have wanted to see it. And the reclaiming of sovereignty is really very much focused on what it means for, for England and all sorts of consequences. I mean, the you know, the neglect of concerns from Scotland and Wales um, is really now coming home to roost in the form of um, the, the surge of the SNP in Scotland. So, yes, the union's under pressure, and of course, this is inevitably seen as an opportunity for Sinn Fein. But it would be wrong, yes, then automatically to, to see this as um, leading to momentum towards Irish unity. We're definitely entering a process of great flux and change, um, not just for East West relations, Britain, Northern Ireland, but also North South. And how that's navigated is really going to be an enormous challenge for uh, for leadership across the political parties in the region.
1: But Pat, if I could put a question to you, if we have a new dispensation or an emerging new dispensation, as some people have argued, but the old duality, the nationalist <coughs> unionist duality in Northern Ireland is replaced by a kind of a shamrock, three-way kind of a, a, a structure with neither unionists nor nationalists holding a majority. And that is currently the case. That's currently the electoral situation. And with a, a, a growing group of others, for want of a better word, well, that raises questions about the structure of the, the current structure of the Good Friday Agreement and how that should be represented uh, in you know in the assembly in the future in terms of vetoes and and all those kinds of things, and also a question about how Northern Ireland is going to think of its future you know over the next ten years or so yeah, and it's hard to see
0: you know, how that sort of a conversation in Northern Ireland takes place without the functioning institutions. So I guess the first step is to uh, is to get those institutions up and running, but also then to see if they can be operated on a way uh, in, in a fashion that doesn't reduce everything to the constitutional question. And that in a way was the triumph of the Good Friday Agreement in that it took the constitutional question out of everything in Northern Ireland. Now we see that it has you know, in, in, in Recent years that it has returned to crowd everything out, and this is, I think, one of the really interesting questions about the immediate future that faces not just the north, but but also the south too. And that's very obvious that there is a changing landscape in uh, in in the north, not least on those electoral numbers to which you refer, but also a sort of a psychological change uh, in the landscape, the growth of the the centre, the growth of the non-aligned, neither neither nor, uh, neither you unionist and our uh, nationalist cohort there but what isn't clear I think yet is what the landscape is changing to and uh, I I, I think that's one of the things that is kind of quite unpredictable and there is you do have this uh, the constant calls, not just from Sinn Féin, for whom it seems to me the calls for a united Ireland are as much a political tactic to unify their base as anything else, but this broader conversation that we're hearing more and more of and people will have seen the letters to the paper and the uh, thousand signatories looking for for a, a citizens' assembly to discuss the future. But it seems to me that the tenor of those calls is still very much in the tradition of what Arlene Foster calls the pan-nationalist front. In, and the, 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 the rhetoric is almost at times
1: triumphalist. Although the signatories come from a broader swathe of civic society in Ireland than would normally be associated with that.
0: Yes, they are. And there's a very obvious case to be made for that conversation to take place. But it seems to me if it is to involve unionists, then it is going to have to be of a different tenor to uh, some of the calls that, uh, that that we've seen. And I actually attended, there was a public meeting in Crow Park a couple of weeks ago by the Ireland's Future Group. And I attended that and just sat in the audience and listened to it and I spoke to some people there. But much of the, uh, much of the, The tenor of that discussion was it seems to me of the sort of it's going to happen they can get on the train now or they can be left behind, United Ireland is inevitable now we have to start talking uh, uh, about it and that it seems to me is not the sort of thing that is likely to encourage a million unionists to join in that conversation. There may be a, a type of conversation about Ireland's future that involves unionists but I don't think it is what we've heard so far. What do you think of that Katie?
2: Yeah, it's it's a great question. I mean, the problem is what Northern Ireland needs now, and possibly it always has, but is an environment in which we can move away from the the binary. And you know, this is the irony of the Good Friday Agreement that it, it really asserted the that that binary of both communities, two traditions, and it's been successful in that we have this new emerging group of people who aren't that you know bothered about either um and they just want obviously you know jobs and security etc cetera, etc cetera. um that said identity is important and i think in these I mean, these things have to be addressed that the the world has changed and um ireland is really going to be stretched and challenged by brexit as it actually happens um, and i do think it also you know raises an interesting potential for for ireland to think differently Um, About what you know, what it is to be Irish, etc., and more particularly the space for Britishness within Ireland, Um, and those kind of things that obviously were being touched on thirty plus years ago with New Ireland Forum, etc. These things are back to the fore, but the difficulty now is that we won't have that European Union umbrella for, for. trying to deal with these things in an innovative way
1: Indeed um,
2: So, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's you know very practical challenges to be addressed mechanisms of governance, representation, etc north-south as well as within Northern Ireland and east-west um, but those more nuanced things um, that actually mean a lot to people particularly when they come to vote um, those things are a challenge not just for within Northern Ireland but also Ireland itself.
1: Do you think, is there a space for a, a, a civic assembly, a civic forum of some sort which could be framed or structured in such a way, presumably after the reinstitution of, of, of local government in Northern Ireland, where it could be it could be structured in such a way that unionists would not find it threatening, that some of the fears which are expressed by political parties south of the border about it causing more trouble than um, than, than causing good, that those could all be addressed and that you could Actually, have some kind of a an ongoing debate about you know the constitutional future of the island in all its forms, but in a non-threatening way. Do you think that's achievable?
2: We, I think we need to distinguish between so the civic forum that would you know that was allowed for um, by the Good Friday Agreement that needs to be re-established. Some people would argue you know to be full you know have the full fulfilment of the Good Friday Agreement. So you'd have the civic forum within Northern Ireland as a means of having voices. Heard and influence decision making in Northern Ireland that come from all sorts of sectors, not just the political parties. And then, of course, there's a civic forum, North South, again that was never established. Um, but now there's a real need for it. One could argue, as um, in order to help manage, negotiate these these you know this changing environment, a citizens' assembly would be something quite different. And you could see the potential use for such a thing um, if it's a very specific question that is being asked of it, a very specific matter such as in relation to a referendum, but possibly um, something that doesn't go quite that far, but that enables people to hear you know, expert opinion and then make um, informed decisions and judgments on those things. And uh, there could be potential use for that. Certainly diversifying out from the traditional forms of policy-making, decision-making would, would be worth exploring um, given the scale of the challenges now faced. Although, Pat, the Taoiseach doesn't seem very keen on this kind of a thing.
0: No, he's not, and neither does the Fianna Fáil leader, Micheál Martin, both of whom have have recently and regularly expressed scepticism about the timing of either a Citizens' Assembly or any sort of forum like that to discuss Irish unity. Their view is that at a time like this when you know, unionism is under stress, unionism is uh, is under pressure, there's uncertainty about the future of the union, that it's the worst time to uh, approach, approach this issue. At the same time, it's very clear that, to some degree at least, the constitutional future of... Northern Ireland is now a question in a way that it hasn't been in the past. The raw numbers make that point in and of themselves. And I think that there is a challenge not just for the next government, but for civic society to think of a way uh, that it can explore and address these questions while not being seen by unionists. And remember, it doesn't matter how we see it, but it's whether it can be... uh, Established in such a way that it is not seen by unionists as simply some sort of a incarnation of a pan-nationalist front, and until I think that unionism is in a perhaps a more secure place, uh, whether that's because the institutions are up and running and functioning and have been for some time then uh, I, I think the irish government any irish government would face questions uh, about it
2: i i would say i mean the question is how does unionism get to be in a more secure place i mean certainly by you know some means of reassurance from the british government unlikely now but anyway it could it could be asked for but most particularly any such you know citizens assembly the, the Irish government would need to go into it if it was to support it, and Irish Irish parties and participants would need to go into it, expressing a willingness to change, so that it isn't just unionists aligning with, you know, the norm or the majority, but there's actually potential and a willingness there to adapt, to um, to uh, I- include and respond to the concerns of unionists and indeed the positive. Uh, elements of unionist and British identity,
1: and do you sense that that's not there at the moment behind this current initiative or the kind of assembly which Pat was talking about, his editing a couple of weeks ago? Do you not detect that there right now?
2: I think, I think it has to be. I think even the way that you move towards getting such a thing up and running, regardless of, regardless of the kind of the language around it. You'd have to be very careful to make sure, right from the very beginning, uh, that loyalists and unionists were seen to help shape the agenda, if you like, of these initiatives, rather than just being asked to respond to it. Now, on the other hand, uh, you know, the question always comes back: Well, why doesn't why don't unionists themselves do some initiative to, you know, try and advocate the benefits of the UK union? I think we're sort of Slightly beyond that now, and I think there is, um, you know, some some means by which uh, we can have more imaginative conversations, potentially about what you know, uh, what relations between these two islands might look like into the future. Um, but again, this would need to be a, a shared initiative and not one that has particularly come from one quarter. And that that's going to re- in, require trust and relationship building, and it's going to take a long time. I think the idea that it can be done in a fairly rapid way. Um, it's simply nonsensical. It's going to take um, a lot of care. And as I say, a, a, a trust that um, all parties going into it are willing to see quite substantial if not constitutional change.
1: And I suppose, yes, and and finally, Pat, I mean, the practicalities of this are that even in the best of all possible worlds, the, the executive is reconstituted and is back up and running early next year. Uh, then there's an election here in February, March, April, May. Who knows? We'll know pretty soon that there'll be no movement on these kinds of issues because of those political realities at the very least until towards the end of 2020. You've got to think so. And then Brexit, towards the end of 2020, you go into perhaps another
0: cliff edge on Brexit exit as the UK approaches the the deadline presumably without a trade uh, trade deal having been finalized by that stage but there's another break on things as well and that's the disinterest of the incoming British administration in Northern Ireland and it's hard to see how you know these constitutional questions could be addressed in a sort of inclusive way without leadership and involvement from Downing Street and I just think that is not going to happen and I think there is significant evidence for that in the way that Boris Johnson has treated Northern Ireland thus
1: far. It's right, a long road to travel. We shall leave it there. Katie, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks also to Pat for joining us today. And that's it for today. Thanks to our producer Declan Conlon and remember you can subscribe to us on Apple and Spotify on eCast or your preferred podcast provider. You can get us at irishtimes.com slash podcasts. You can mail me at hlinahan at irishtimes.com or you can find me on Twitter. Until the next time, thanks for listening.